0: Welcome to She Illuminated. I'm Jana Fuchs, a licensed clinical psychotherapist and sole coach for burnt out women and moms looking to take control of their stress and say hello to a more joyful life. I'm also a mom to two incredible young humans, one of whom is autistic. Together, we will dive into real, raw, and messy conversations about intuition, vulnerability, and the resilience of the human spirit. We all deserve the gift of connection to ourselves and to our lives, so let's spend a little time together here, and perhaps we can walk through the rest of this day feeling just a bit more brightly illuminated. Let's go. My dearly illuminated moms of school age kids, this episode is for you. And it's one that carries so much personal meaning for me. If you've ever had a hunch or even a deep knowing that your kid is somehow different than other kids, whether it's a social, emotional concern or an academic one, then you don't want to miss this episode. This is a story about a mother's love. Her intuition, and her relentless pursuit in advocating for children in schools. It's all about how we as mothers will go to the ends of the earth to fight for our kids to be accepted and understood, and how we can turn the most unimaginable pain into the most meaningful life experiences, both personally and professionally. It's also about my story and being told many times over that my child was not autistic when in fact, deep down, I sense that he was and why finally learning that he is in fact autistic has been so crucial to everyone's mental health. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about today's guest, um, what she does and why she's so important to me. And why I want to share her with you all because she is truly, she's truly been such a gift to our son first and foremost, um, and selfishly to my husband and myself. But she's also just such a wealth of information. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about who this person is. Her name is Peppy Silverman. And she is the founder and director of Bridge Educational Advocacy. She is an experienced public school administrator, university professor, teacher, and parent of three beautiful daughters, the youngest with multiple disabilities. Pepe has the unique and comprehensive experience to work with educational systems throughout the state of Illinois and across the country. Pepe has sat on all seats at the conference table. She understands all the roles and each participant's responsibilities, and she brings that understanding into her work as an advocate. Her dedicated work at Bridge Educational Advocacy has been her opportunity to extend herself and her knowledge to support families and their kids to receive the programs and services that allow them to be successful learners. So a little disclaimer here, today's episode is deeply personal to me because it's about our family and specifically our young son, Leo. It's also going to be a bit of a longer episode broken into three separate chapters because each of the three chapters felt important to the whole. So feel free to obviously listen at your own pace and leisure or pick and choose from the chapters that resonate most. The first chapter involves my sharing of my own story and the journey of our family walking side by side with Leo, our now 10-year-old son, and navigating our arrival at his ultimate diagnosis and all of the confusion, frustration, overwhelm, and ultimately the wins that we finally experienced. The second chapter is the personal story of Pepe and how her work as an educational advocate ties into her personal experiences as a mother of three daughters, including one with special needs. The third chapter is going to be full of information from Peppy about what you can do at school to better understand your options and your rights as a parent in supporting your child. And finally, just a little note on how things evolved for the recording of this episode. So I actually unexpectedly ended up interviewing Pepe twice The first time I interviewed her was initially planned as a question and answer session about how, as parents, we can best advocate for our kids at school when we're coming up empty and we're not getting the answers that we need, whether you have a child with special needs or not. And as we got closer to the end of that interview we had to wrap up because I had to get my kids at school it had already been an hour but toward the end of that interview um, it it came to light that uh, Peppy's daughter who who she um, you know tells us about who had special needs growing up ultimately passed away at a young age and that story felt like it got cut off prematurely and felt so significant into the the unfolding of who peppy is as a person and as a professional and to me that was so much of the juice of this episode and after we after we pressed stop record I couldn't stop thinking about, gosh, I really wish we had more time to dive into that story. And I really didn't know that it was going to go in that direction. That was actually the first time I had heard that story from Pepe. And so I called her back and I asked her if she might feel comfortable coming back on and doing a second recording about the more personal side of her story, Um, which she said she doesn't talk about too often. But she felt that any way she could be of support and help to other parents in sharing that, um, she would be happy to do so. And so she did ultimately come back on the show and we recorded that uh, second chapter, which is going to be, you know, chapter two. So that will be what you hear for chapter two. And then chapter three is actually going to be what I initially recorded with Pepe, which is the question and answer session. So now that you've had the formal intro um, into Pepe's very impressive bio, I wanna share with you all why I selected her to be on the show. Pepe has meant a great deal to us and our family in helping us to navigate our way toward our son's diagnosis and ultimately the supports that he ended up receiving at school. Um, And she is in large part um, the driving force behind why he has been so successful this past year at school. It all began about two years ago when, at the time, my third grade son, Leo, was in his third week of school. So we're still talking September here, and we were told at a parent-teacher conference over Zoom that we should consider looking for a therapeutic school because my son was different and his teacher felt protective of him, and specifically of his social-emotional vulnerabilities. And for reasons that you'll hear, it was the shock of a lifetime, and I realized that we were going to need some major help resourcing ourselves in navigating the school system and learning what our options were. Enter Peppy educational advocate of the century. So Pepe stepped in after I reached out to her in a panic about what our next steps should be. And she walked us through our options, provided support and education, and has gone to bat many times over for our son who is now doing beautifully in his advanced curriculum, public school, by the way, with a robust individualized educational plan or IEP. And the school is legally obligated to adhere to that. um, and, And his success has been in large part to the resources that Pepe has helped to put into place for him. So, While this past school year took some months to get the right supports in place, with Pepe's unwavering support and knowledge, we were finally able to execute a meaningful IEP. And the difference between where our headspace was two years ago versus where it is now is really night and day. And I can tell you right now that without an educational advocate like Pepe by our side, despite our best efforts and resources, we would not have been nearly as successful in advocating for our kid. So to give you some context about the school that told us our son, Leo, should consider looking elsewhere for the following school year you know and and ps this was the school that he had been at since he was 3 years old it's a very special and beautiful place it's a montessori school um and and again he had been there since he was 3 years old and since my daughter was 2 years old and we felt so lucky to be a part of that community and have our children learn so much about not only just like academia there and mastering all the things that little ones are supposed to master but really about life. And it wasn't just about that, again, the academics. It was about how to really be a global citizen and follow your individual interests and passions. And to give you some more background on my beautiful boy, Leo, I had a normal pregnancy um, and a chaotic, but otherwise <laughs> healthy delivery and he was a very well adjusted baby and toddler super easy um and my husband and I were like what is everyone complaining about that like parenthood is like so hard and we just thought like you know we've we've got this parenting thing down like we're we're really good at this like no problem we'll have another one um he was just such a delight um he slept through the night at 12 weeks and we were often told by our you know parents and our in-law my in-laws like you have no idea how lucky you are and so then we had our second child, Stella, when Leo was two years and 10 months. And it seemed like just a few months later that his behavior started to change. And, you know, we thought it was maybe having a new sister, transitioning from daycare to preschool at the same time that he had just had a little sister and then the new baby sister in the house. Um, and whatever whatever the case was, my point is that his behavior was noticeably changing and different, and specifically, he was more angry. He was having more tantrums, more dysregulation, more blow-ups over really small things. And he was taking longer to grow out of the parallel play stage in comparison to his peers, and he often preferred to work alone versus in groups. Now I'm a therapist as you know but any mom who is attuned to her kid which I believe you know many mothers are um would have also sensed that something was different even back then at 3 years old and I would also like often have to find myself like apologizing for his wild bouncing off the walls body at large family gatherings and my husband and I began to feel really stressed. Like whenever we would go to large gatherings, with groups of people, it became kind of like a stressful thing. And we hoped that it was just some delayed version of the terrible twos because, again, he wasn't a typical terrible two toddler. And so this was kind of a shock to us that at age three, we were seeing this really kind of like marked difference. And Again, just kind of dismissed and thought he was adjusting to having a new baby sister in the house. Fast forward to age six. I said to my husband, if Leo does not have an ADHD diagnosis, then I will be shocked and you should probably consider revoking my license because I am just going to go out on a limb here and say he definitely has ADHD. And at age six and a half, he received a full neuropsychological evaluation, which is the youngest age here that a child can be assessed and diagnosed with ADHD. And at that same evaluation, it was also revealed to us that Leo's IQ was unusually high, but that his processing speed and executive functioning skills were much lower. Due to his struggles with attention and staying on task. I should clarify that my suspicions were correct and that ADHD was confirmed as Leo's primary diagnosis. Then, at age seven and a half, we made the very difficult decision to start Leo on stimulants because his ability to function in the classroom was becoming more impaired and he was struggling to learn how to read. It took us a while to like figure out also the trial and error of navigating side effects with medic you know with meds and we did start to slowly see some progress and within a number of months, Leo's reading took off really quickly and after that, his teacher remarked how incredible the difference was um, due to the medication change. And this is also a good time to mention that Leo's prescribing doctor, who was amazing, by the way, Dr. Toya Roberson Moore, shout out to you. Um, she had encouraged us to get Leo tested to rule out an autism diagnosis at age seven and a half because she had wondered, as did I, if maybe some of Leo's behaviors, the ones I, I previously mentioned about preferring alone time and difficulty connecting with peers in a social context, could also be explained possibly not just by, not just by ADHD, but also um, maybe uh, an autism diagnosis. And so we did. We had him tested at age seven and a half, and the conclusion was that no, he did not, in fact, have autism. And the kind of conclusion was that he was just bright and quirky with some mild anxiety and moderate to severe ADHD. So to recap, our kid had been tested twice, by age seven and a half, First with a full neuropsych eval, which revealed the primary diagnosis of ADHD. And the second assessment was with the ADOS, which is a test that's specifically designed to assess for autism, um, where they confirmed that the primary ADHD diagnosis was, in fact, what we were observing, not autism. Okay, so back to life for Leo at school. So when his teacher was candid with us at that meeting over Zoom, the day she told us she thought perhaps Leo should consider another school for the following year for fourth grade, she remarked, you know, he's, he's so intellectually gifted. He's clearly like light years beyond his peers with being able to kind of have critical, like high level thinking and grasping concepts really quickly. Um, But her, her protective instincts were more about preserving his, his self-esteem socially with peers. Um, The thing that was so confusing for me was that In the years prior, she had also been his teacher the two years before that, because in Montessori, they stay with the same teacher for three years at a time. Um, In the two years before that, I had asked numerous times if she thought he was in the right type of environment. And she did at at those times assure us that the beauty of a Montessori education was that it had the capability to meet each child's exactly where they were at any given time and that the child always leads the way. And that's such a beautiful concept and this really is such a beautiful school with some really incredible teachers and staff and families and it's also a place that prides itself on diversity and inclusion and we just loved all of that. We loved those principles. We felt that, you know, those principles aligned with our values and yet Despite the school's best efforts to meet my son where he was, I was suddenly being told something very different in that third week of Leo's third grade year, right? So then I had like the rest of the school year in front of us knowing that my kid is not in the right environment for him. So his teacher recommended that we look into other schools that could really address his issues as part of their regular curriculum. And she even suggested perhaps sending him to a therapy school as an option. And some of my thoughts and feelings at the time were, number one, I don't know of too many other kids whose ADHD presents as so severe That even while they are intellectually gifted, they need to possibly attend a therapeutic school just due to the social emotional concerns. Number two, I was shocked. I felt betrayed, I felt lied to and we were assured over and over again by that same teacher that our son was such a bright learner that he was light years beyond his peers and grasping high level concepts and you know that she could meet him wherever he was and number 3 then i was scared i felt so completely alone and why my beautiful son why us I had no idea what Leo's short or long-term future held or what this meant for our family and supporting him. And this school truly was like our home away from home. We were there for six years. I started to fill up with anxiety and anticipatory grief in a major way. And I really didn't know anyone else going through an experience like we were going through which made me feel, of course, further isolated and scared and alone. And again, this was a place that felt like our people, our community. And this is where we made some of our best friends, my husband and I too, who we call our family really still even today. So what did we do? Here's where I circle back around to Peppy Silverman. So with Pepe's guidance and support, again, after I reached out to her in a panic and after I even learned that hiring an educational advocate was a thing, we thoughtfully pulled Leo out of that school that we called home at the next logical time, halfway through the year, and we enrolled him in a very small, I'm talking 40 kids or so, private therapeutic school for kids with various diagnoses, but mainly who were described as bright learners with ADHD or autism or both. And I really wasn't willing to let my son suffer at a school for an entire school year where his teacher told me in the third week of school that he was in the wrong environment. And so we began to learn about all the differences Between private schools versus public schools, we started to research that and how they are held to different legal standards regarding students with special needs or circumstances. And contrary to what we thought we knew at the time, even private schools who claim and intend to serve every type of student just can't. For starters, they don't have the legal obligation to do any of that. And they don't have the resources, despite charging an arm and a leg, for every type of, of circumstance that any given student might require. Meanwhile, at Leo's therapeutic school, he was one of 10 students in his class, and he was the youngest by over a year. And he was also grief-stricken and missing his old school And he really didn't understand why he had to change schools, though we did our best to be direct and supportive in explaining it to him. And that second half of his third grade year at that therapeutic school also was not a good fit. And honestly, I was beginning to feel worried and a bit hopeless with what to do next. Was he going to fit anywhere you know, and we saw our son's self-esteem like start to plummet and he had a difficult time just finding a single friend that he clicked with. And I believe that for him, being at that school, that therapeutic school actually made him feel even more othered. And the major thing that comforted me at the time, though, was knowing that we had Pepe's support and guidance and time to answer our millions of questions. So one disclaimer though, for many students who can't get their needs met in other academic settings, of course, therapeutic schools can be a saving grace. This just wasn't the case for our kid and certainly not at that particular school. Another important piece of this is that my hunch was growing stronger as Leo was growing older that ADHD and anxiety alone didn't explain some of his difficulty in social situations, even though he can be really outgoing and he loves playing host whenever we have friends over, which we do quite a lot. Um, And around this time, I had read a book called Differently Wired by Debbie Reber. And I knew deep down from the moment I closed that book, that my boy Leo was in fact autistic. And while I felt ridiculous for bringing the idea back up again to my husband and Leo's doctor, I followed my gut and I resourced myself and I got a referral for the autism assessment neuropsychologist, number one guru in Chicago, Dr. Jennifer Gorski. Her name kept coming up over and over. In my research. And so I put Leo on her wait list. Eight months later, after her very detailed and thorough evaluation, she confirmed what my intuition had been telling me for years, that Leo was in fact autistic and he also has ADHD. So for me, finally getting that diagnosis was so validating. Um, For my husband, it was more about acceptance. Um, And for Leo, our son, he took the news of his diagnosis with what appeared to us as relief. And he openly talks about his autism and he feels zero self-consciousness about it. Now he doesn't have to mask who he is. He's free to be his amazing autistic self because he's actually one of the most beautiful souls I know with a heart that is pure gold. And he has taught me so much about what autism is and what it isn't. And it's true what they say. When you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And it's different for everyone. Um, And on that note, I will just share, right? Like my son makes eye contact. My son can talk about his feelings. My son loves to give hugs and to be hugged. My son is social and outgoing. My son can reflect on when he's made a mistake really well and internalize it and apologize for it. So all of these, these kind of characteristics that he has are not what I would have thought before I knew that I had an autistic kid. That's not what I would think of as like a typical autistic kid, right? But what is a typical autistic kid? So I'm sharing this with you because even as a therapist, it was really hard to totally know. And this is a show about following your intuition Right. And and kind of like chasing those breadcrumbs one at a time. And so later that same year in Leo's third grade year in the spring, we were notified by the public school system that Leo had tested in the top one to two percent of students in the Chicago area where he was offered a selective enrollment seat at a wonderful public school eight minutes away from our home. And so um, at the time, just to give you just a little background, when we had put Leo in the therapeutic school, we also had him tested in the public school system uh, because you have to take that test for the following year, um, almost like a a full year in advance, Um, because we didn't know how it would go at the therapeutic school. And we wanted to have you know, public school as as an option to him, too, if that was the direction we decided to go the following year. And I'm so glad that we did that, and you'll find out why. And Leo was elated from the moment he found out that he got into their selective enrollment program. and he's been elated there ever since. Um, when he got in, we were honestly amazed here. Our kid, who struggled with tying his shoes in under 10 minutes, had remembered to fill out all the bubbles on his little Scantron thing, which was a brand new concept for him and something he had never done before at his Montessori school because they don't test kids at such a young age there. And he crushed that exam. And we were floored. It's now been a year. And our son, who was miserable at that therapeutic school, is now... Again, happy, he's supported, and he's thriving in his advanced curriculum public school. And so here are my takeaways that I want to share with you and that I wish I had known two years ago when we were kind of going through hell. Number one, just because you are fortunate enough to have the resources to send your kid to private school, if this applies to you, doesn't mean that that's where your kid will be the most successful, best served, or feel their happiest. If something tells you that your kid feels like a square peg in a round hole at school, yet you desperately want it to work for them, honor your inner voice and consider exploring alternatives. There's no harm in just exploring. Number two, to all of you mamas out there, if you sense that something is different about your kid than what you're being told at all. Even by well-meaning experts and clinicians, let your intuition lead the way. And number three, ask questions, join parenting and school groups, network, be assertive. Number four, Debbie Reber is an amazing resource. She's an author, a mother, and podcaster, and she speaks on the subject all the time. Again, the name of the book I read is called Differently Wired, and it was like water in a lonely (laughs) desert for me at the time when I read it. Shout out, Debbie. Thank you. And I'd love to have you on the pod one day. Number five. If you can swing it, consider hiring someone like Pepe to help answer your questions or an advocate for your child. It's an emotional process, and it can be a huge relief in mitigating the overwhelm of it all. So I won't keep you waiting any longer in sharing my chat with Pepe. Let's get to that now. Pepe, So happy to have you back on the show. Um, And when you were here last time, when we were recording our first segment, um, I stopped the recording when it was done. The hour was up and I had to get my kids. And we kept chatting as I was, you know, cleaning up my stuff and things took a more personal turn. Um, And we connected over the story of your daughter, Lana. And then I was kicking myself for pressing stop record. So I wanted to welcome you back today. And you so sweetly acquiesced um, and volunteered to share the more personal side of your story and the ways in which Lana's life impacted yours. Um, and this podcast is a, a place where we come together to talk about how, in part, painful experiences can, in some ways, add richness to our lives and new meaning if that's what we're able to do um with those experiences and so i'm wondering if you could tell us more about your own journey as a mother and how that's tied into
1: your work now as an educational advocate sure um i have three beautiful daughters Two uh, that were neurotypical um, and our youngest child, Lana, um, was born with a variety of different disabilities and health conditions. Obviously, when you start a family, you don't think about, you know, will one of my children have unique needs? And I had planned on being a special educator um, from the time I was a child and had an opportunity to volunteer in what was at the time an experiment um, where the school district brought in uh, one classroom of students with physical disabilities and those students were kept very separate from everyone else um, I happened to notice them one afternoon at recess and just wondered why were they playing on the other side of the playground and all the other students were playing you know on the side that I was on and it didn't occur to me um, to do anything other than walk over and the, you know, there wasn't a fence or a barrier. Um, so that was my initiation in wanting to go into education and particularly special education. Um, I didn't plan for that to be a part of my personal life as well. Um, but it felt really natural. Uh, it was just a part of our lives. Her sisters didn't feel that anything was unique about our family. It was just how we lived. Um, but over time, uh, different things occurred. We moved, we re- relocated from Los Angeles to Texas. Um, we found Texas to be a very unique place to live. Um, and it was the first time in our lives that, like, she didn't go to what is called extended school year or summer school because we were in the middle of moving. So um, it was the first time we noticed. Her experience with regression and so then I was going to IEP meetings as a mother versus IEP meetings as a teacher um, and thinking to myself being in a new state each state sometimes each school district gives different terminology you would think that based in federal law there would be common language but that's anything but the truth different school districts call things different things And the way that federal law is interpreted um, from state to state, from community to community, is different. So I was having a unique experience as a parent hearing terms that I wasn't familiar with, hearing teacher feedback about services and what she might be eligible for or not eligible for but with the added layer of they were using different language. And I had kind of a moment where I was like, well, what if I didn't know what I know? And how does this feel to other parents? I was having a, a mild experience of that because I was already a special education teacher, but living in a different state, sort of having a quasi, you know, experience that helped me to connect. So on a, on a personal level, I joined some parent groups, Um, I did some grant writing, um, again, based on my experience as a parent, doctors telling us, you know, oh, she'll never do this or she'll never do that. And she did all the things that they said she would never do. But then she, uh, one random, uh, Sunday, we were going to go to a butterfly exhibit and she was usually a very spunky, excited little kid. And she was acting differently um, in a way that was very unique for her. Um, And unfortunately uh, we took her to the emergency room and um, we found out very quickly that she was gravely ill um, and um, went through that experience. But for her school was like going to a rock concert or seeing your favorite movie star. She thought school was the best thing ever. And so she was very, very um, motivated. To go to school nothing was going to slow her down and she in fact went to school you know just a few up to uh, a few days before she passed away and the last people she saw um was her teachers came to visit her and i think that that really motivated her right up until you know the very last moments of her life but i don't share that information with families because it can be overwhelming And I don't want anyone to think, well, her child had a disability and then had other health conditions that adversely impacted her life. Um, I didn't want that baggage um, to be um, uncomfortable for anyone else. Um, So as I've worked through my career, I don't tell very many people about that. Um, But a former colleague of mine said, well, why don't you? And I thought, well, I'm there to serve this other family and be there 100% for them. And I was advised, it's okay to share this. So over time, as I work with families, if there is an opportunity in a time that's a, that's reasonable and appropriate, I, I tell people about her. Thank you so much for sharing um, sharing
0: that story. And, um, you know, I, on on the receiving end of your services and just getting to know you over time, it has become so apparent. And I mean, quite honestly, it was apparent from the very beginning that your drive and your tenacity is like unparalleled. It's you know, you meet people sometimes who just feel like never take their foot off the gas. And that is, that's you. And I've always had this hunch or this sense that, that there was a whole story there of why it feels so important for you to keep your foot on the gas. And um, I'm wondering if if that resonates at all for you. And and how I think, first of all, that curiosity that you had at a very early age, like you described in fifth grade, seeing the children with disabilities and there was no fence. And you just like you just naturally always felt a pull um, towards people who are just people, what, whether or not they have differences or right. And why why are they being kept apart and why can't we all kind of, you know, be kids mm-hmm. together Um, so I don't know. Is there something about like keeping your foot on the gas and your own personal
1: story that feels somehow linked for you? Um, I don't think about it that way, to be honest, but uh, what I do think about is if a family is telling me their story as an advocate, if I'm in a meeting and I think, what if this was my daughter's meeting? Yeah. Um, and what would I want for her? Um, and if I would want that for her, then every other child should have that as well. Yeah. Um, there is a there is kind of this overlay in public schools, particularly where it's I call it sage on the stage, where the school will approach the family and say, "Hey, we're experts. We do this. You know, we designed our educational programming, and you as parents." should um, appreciate and listen to everything we're presenting to you and we'll let you know if there's anything that you need and to me that seems absolutely opposite to the approach that should be taken yes there is knowledge in educators that absolutely is um, critically important but no one knows the child the way their parents do um, they've lived every moment from the time they became a person, and schools don't do, in my opinion, enough to try to partner with parents and gain the knowledge and expertise that parents bring to the table. Um, that I'm there's I could go on and on. There's a variety of different reasons that that might be the case, but just from an information gathering standpoint, it would be like hiring a contractor without architectural blueprints right Um, and sometimes in a school meeting they're talking about surface things and they're not necessarily trying to understand um, the most foundational things that are important and make a child available to learn so I bring the parent perspective along with my other experiences (laughs) and my focus is how do we make sure that the parents have a voice at the table and that a strong partnership can be built that's what I would want for my own daughter.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, as you were talking earlier,
0: it it dawned on me that, right, here you were uh, already in special education. You knew a lot of the ins and outs and the terminology and the concepts. And here you were as a parent in Texas, which, you know, as you described, they had different vocabulary different rules and laws and everything else. And my gosh, like, I'm thinking if you had trouble, right? And I mean, this is exactly what you were saying. And this drives me nuts because, you know, where from where I'm sitting, you know, I'm someone who's pretty well educated. I am not um, in the field of education, right? I'm a psychotherapist. But I have, um, I'm, I'm blessed to have resources and an education behind me and, you know, consider myself well read. And it was the feeling of, for me, being like a deer in headlights. And here you were, right, in special education. Um, and with all of these credentials as an educator um, and administrator, you know, behind you, and even for you. It was like what language are we speaking here? I need to know the language so that I can advocate for for my daughter. Um, so what advice do you have for parents who are experiencing that like deer in headlights feeling? You know, if 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 you could go back in time, maybe and like talk to yourself back then.
1: You know, like what what would you say? I mean first and foremost trust your intuition like I said I don't think anyone knows a child the way that a parent does and so that intuition is critical sometimes you'll take your child to the pediatrician and the doctor says oh no he's fine and you say I I feel something I know something Um, and so don't um, dismiss your own kind of inner voice yeah Um, I'm a big fan as a teacher, as an advocate, as, you know, in everything that I do of questioning. Um, So there are people who feel sort of the system is stacked against them and they come out in kind of a fight or flight mode. I try to guide the conversation and I use a lot of questions. So don't limit yourself like, oh, I've asked three questions. I don't want to bother anybody. I've talked too much in this meeting. You are the most, you as a parent are the most important person at that meeting. Um, And so ask your questions. And if they say, oh, we only have 45 minutes, then you say, I still have questions. If we need to reschedule, then we need to reschedule. But trusting your intuition and asking the questions until you feel as a parent that I understand. I understand what they're, that doesn't mean you're always going to agree but there should be a shared understanding. So that's what I'm always striving for. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Peppy. It means the world. And I think that
0: people will really connect with you and your story. And regardless of whether their children are neurotypical or, or not, um, I think every parent out there can relate to what it's like when your child is going through something. And how we can turn um, experiences that have felt, um, you know, difficult, um, where we've experienced adversity and and what we can do to trust our intuition, resource ourselves, uh, do the research, and keep going if you're not getting the answers um, that you need. So yeah, thank you, Peppy.
1: My pleasure. And I, just to add one other piece to that, um, that happens for families whose children um, don't have any special needs at all. So my, my guidance and advice and my advocacy is for all kids um, that, that sometimes there's more complexity with a student with special needs, but every mother and father, every caregiver, every guardian, trust your instincts about your child and, continue the conversation until you understand
0: yeah thank you. Thank you Peppy.
1: One final question
0: and this one's a, a little more personal so whatever you're comfortable sharing, I will say well extremely different for for obvious reasons I, I lost my mom when um when I was 20 and I have, my own ways of connecting with her and having a relationship with her now, just not in physical form. So sometimes I'll talk out loud to her. Sometimes I'll journal and I'll write her a letter. Um, Sometimes I'll see my amazing spiritual medium, Delphina, and talk to her that way. Um, And everyone has their own unique beliefs about where their loved ones are, where they go. I I don't feel that my mom is at this. I don't feel a connection to the cemetery where she's buried. I, um, To me, she is in my children. She's in when I cook meals for them. She's in uh, the humor that, that I have. She um is in the joy that that i that I carry into my life. um, and that's where she is. And um those are all the ways that I carry her with me. And I'm wondering, um, like kind of spiritually, the ways in which you connect presently, with Lana.
1: Um, I mean, most notably is my work. Um, so, so that's an everyday tribute to her. Um, when she passed away, we had a, we had like a, not really a religious service, but um, a gathering. Um, and other than my work, I'm a pretty shy person. People find that sort of remarkable because I talk a lot. Um, but on a personal level, I'm, I'm pretty quiet. Uh, and we're standing in this room and we set up, I don't know, maybe 50 or 75 chairs and we kept having to get more and more chairs out. And I was so taken aback by the number of people that came and the number of people that identified and felt that they had a connection with her. And even though she only lived to the age of nine, um, there were easily 150 to 200 people there, and people I had never met. So, I mean, she's a little girl with multiple disabilities, who maybe I knew 50 of the 200 people that were there. So how did that happen? So I think I shared this with you. Um, my husband's a photographer, and so she grew up around cameras, and she had this uh, perception that if someone had a camera, it was her role to be in the picture. And so several people showed me pictures that they carried in their wallet um, because they were taking pictures pictures, family pictures, you know, after a school assembly or something like that. And if she saw a camera, she ran over and not just stood in the picture, but like posed in the picture and even were so, you know, sort of enamored with her spunky personality that not only did they keep that picture of who was basically, you know, almost a stranger to them, but they like treasured it and carried it around with them. So how incredible um, for a nine-year-old to have impacted so many people. Um, and how special her life was for herself, for our family, but for people that, you know, I, this was, we lived in Texas when she passed away. Um, we now live in Chicago. And so most of the people I know in Chicago, other than close relatives, never met her. And yet, um, because of who she was, who she is in terms of spirit, um, I can have this dialogue with people. Um, And so she's remembered in a way that's unique and special. So she's very present in our lives. Um, She she does drive what I do every day. But her spirit, I think, sort of is transcendent in a way that is really unique. There are people in the world that um, get known um, for small things. And she gets known for who she was and the kind of life she led. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Well, I I just want to say, I, for one, am
0: feeling Lana's presence here today. And what a beautiful tribute to her um, that she is part of the work that you do every day and i and i and i have a hunch at least from the outside looking in um that that is part of the not taking your foot off the gas (laughs) um just like lana running over to the camera right and that kind of like you know spirit and you know lending herself towards like tenacity and uh you have that same kind of um relentless kind of drive. And um, I just thank you so much for sharing the story.
1: Sure. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for asking.
0: When a parent reaches out to you, can you tell us a little bit about like what on average, obviously, every situation is different, but what do you see most commonly? Like, by the time a family reaches out to you, what has, where have they kind of been? What struggles are they encountering?
1: And yeah, I guess that's a good place to start. So, most, I'd say probably 70% of people that reach out to me have already experienced a level of frustration or an Incident or episode where they feel like I wasn't heard. Yeah. And it could be at a, you know, a simple level, like I didn't get, you know, uh, a field trip's permission slip to my child has been harmed in some way at Mm -hmm. school. And they don't, parents don't intuitively know, well, how do I navigate this? Yeah. Sometimes they'll contact their child's teacher. I'd say that's the typical first step. But what if that teacher doesn't return your email? Yeah. What if that you leave a message and they don't call you back? And then what do you do with that? I think there's a certain level of respect that parents bring to the school system. And so they don't want to bother anyone. And so they come often to me after they've tried the emails, tried the phone calls, haven't gotten the responses or the responses don't really address their question. Yeah. And they feel like they need help.
0: Yeah. Yeah and I'll speak for myself here you know you want I wanted my son's teachers to to view him positively right and i part of that is um we're a direct connection to him and um i don't want to burn bridges this is his teacher for the year right i don't want to be a pain and have them even subconsciously like penalize him. Right. Um, but when I'm not getting email responses, like you just said, or there's lack of clarity around what's homework versus what's classwork and what's he actually expected to do and how much am I responsible for supplementing like the the teaching? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, is it is it fair to say then that a lot of families by the time they've reached out to you, they, they've tried so many things on their own already and that they're feeling like kind of frustrated
1: and, and helpless as to like how to, w- what their options are. I think that that's absolutely a great description. Yeah. Um, But I think it kind of begins maybe two steps before that. Okay. A sense of intimidation. Yeah. What if I ask the wrong question? Yeah. What if I say the wrong thing? And so then there's this period of sort of limbo time. Yeah. Where they don't know what to try first. Yeah. And- For me, I want parents to feel that they have a voice, whether it's answering a simple question or dealing with a complex issue. No one, this is my foundational belief, Mm -hmm. knows their child in the way parents do. And so if the parents don't know how to connect with the people that in some ways are spending more of the day with their children as they themselves are, Mm -hmm. um, if the parent doesn't know how to connect, then that's a, a real breakdown in communication and that's going to adversely impact um the potential progress yeah. that the child can make because we're not talking to each other. Yeah. So somehow that's the first barrier yeah. is we have to find a way to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um and how going back to like what I was talking about earlier with like the diagnostic um issues if there's if like, what practical advice do you have for parents who are still in the process of knowing exactly what the issues are, um, right? They can describe, and it's not about labels, but it's it's how the lens through which to view your child um, specifically, like, as a student and what their struggles are. And if you don't have... A specific diagnosis yet um, or even if there is no specific diagnosis, right? Like, does that have to be a
1: limiting factor or how do you how do you navigate that? So again, I think parents have a good intuition yeah. about something. So they might not be able to label it yet, but my first piece of advice is to trust that intuition. Yeah. Have a feeling, go with that feeling. Yeah. Talk with anyone that you can starting sometimes with your pediatrician, but it could be talking to your friends. It could be going to a birthday party and watching your child at that birthday party and are they participating in a way that looks similar to other people or are they participating differently? Yeah. Um, All of those kind of early steps, um, I encourage parents to trust and explore. Yeah. The second piece is There's a range of performance. Just like when they're babies, they don't all walk at nine months or 12 months or 15 months. Sure. That range is important. And what sometimes happens is that parents will look at their child, hear from someone in their family or um, a friend, oh, my child was doing that three months ago, um, and feeling as though something must be wrong. Yeah. So give yourself permission to live within that range. Um, ask the questions that you want to ask and trust your gut is, is sort of that first step. And if you're getting information that doesn't feel or sound right, yeah. like, oh, don't worry about it, you know, check into it next year, check into it when they start kindergarten, check into it when they're in third grade. I mean, if that just doesn't sound right. Trust yourself and continue to ask the questions. I could get
0: emotional listening to you speak. And I am a little bit. Um, because you are the person, right, who in the most beautiful, gentle, non-judgmental way, right, kind of validated some of my concerns around the question marks that I had when you went and you did our son's observation in his. Uh, private school, his previous school's uh, classroom, and um, you know, you just encouraged me to follow up with maybe another neuropsych evaluation. And you know, I, I want to be clear. Um, you know, Pepe is not a a, a diagnostician, um, and she was very clear about stating that. Um, but there were certain things that raised some flags. Right for for you that um you kind of just encouraged me like trust your gut and honestly I could write a book about it I could start a podcast about it and I am um that's what this that's what she illuminated is all about it's about following our intuition and when the voices of self doubt creep in that's okay. It happens for all of us from time to time. Sometimes it happens often, but it's like you can hold space for that self-doubt and at the same time, follow the breadcrumbs of your intuition, right? And they don't have to be like mutually exclusive. So I, I love that you said that. Um, is there, I know what my process was in terms of, you know, following up and getting another neuropsychological evaluation on the books and how it kind of all unfolded. But for for the listeners, if someone is in that limbo period and they don't know yet how to conceptualize what is all going on, um, is there more or less a general kind of process that you'd
1: recommend? Sure. Yeah. um, There are lots of school regulations and federal laws that are in place to help families go through this journey. So from birth to right before a child turns three, there's what's called early intervention services. Mm -hmm. um, And that can um, be referred to through your pediatrician. Um, That can be something that you pursue individually. um, Because the, the one amazing thing about being a human being is that developmentally, the earlier you intervene, the yeah. greater your opportunities yeah. are. Yeah. Um, this is just a favorite word of mine neuroplasticity. Yeah. That basically <laughs> means that the brain can uh, sort of accommodate for itself. So the sooner you build those pathways, the more opportunities for bridging developmental gaps yeah. are available. So you have early intervention. So from the time your child's born, Um, And then upon turning three, if um, you still have those intuitions, every public school has what's called preschool screenings. Mm -hmm. Um, You can actually reach out to your school district from age two and a half, because if your child is found to be eligible, the school districts are required by law to propose a service upon the third birthday. So let's say your child's birthday is in July. Yeah you don't have to say oh i know everybody's on summer break so i guess there's nothing i can do you can start at two and a half so that even though your child might not be turning three till july if your child's eligible a service plan would be put in place before that third birthday Mm. so that it's very clear that services are available and then from three to five there's what's called early childhood services again if if you pursue those intuitions Um, School districts have preschool screenings that occur. Some do them multiple times a month. Sometimes they do them monthly. But by calling wherever the district office is for where you reside, you can sign your child up for a preschool screening. Um, So that, again, opens a door, at least from a diagnostic standpoint, to say, is there something here? Yeah. Now, school districts have to do a tertiary screening. If you feel as though something's going on and that tertiary screening didn't identify something, that's when you start to do, like what you mentioned, um, more diagnostic testing that would go deeper into whether there's other diagnoses. But from a first step, use the resources that your tax dollars pay for right. in terms of fe- um, state and federal law yeah. to begin a process. And this, this brings me to
0: my next point uh, Point uh, slash question, which is Can you speak a little bit about private school versus public school, right? And um, what
1: parents might need to know that they don't know around access. So, when as a public school, a student needs something more than the school has, like your private school experience, Mm -hmm. private school has has the independence to design their program. And if a student doesn't fit into that program because they are private, they could say, we wish we could help you, but we can't. Yeah. A public school has to accommodate every child. So if a family moves into a public school, and this is an authentic experience that I had, um, two weeks before school started, a family moved into our district um, from a foreign country and their child was deaf. And in their foreign country, there's no, there was no special ed services. So their child went from kindergarten to seventh grade um, in a group of 40 kids, and he never had a hearing aid, and he was deaf. And in two weeks, I had to be prepared as a public school administrator to provide services. We had never had a student who was deaf in our at our campus. So I reached out to the special ed cooperative. Um, and I made connections so that on the first day of school we could serve him. Yeah, and I will
0: tell the I will tell you all as um, as the listeners uh, who are who are listening right now. I didn't know, and Peppy, you know this. We <laughs> adored our son's private school where he. He had started that school. It was a Montessori school. It had a beautiful community of families and teachers and staff. Um, The kids at that school are really encouraged to kind of like lead the way. They really embrace, they claim to really embrace each child as an individual and meet them where they are. And that was true to To a degree, right? But there was like, there was a point at which they couldn't help my son the way that they claimed that they could. And I don't think it was for lack of, um, like not, it's not that they didn't want to. And actually his teacher tried so long and so hard with him. and But she was one teacher with 30 kids. And he wasn't getting his needs met. And I think you even said when you were observing him, it was like um, watching a what did you say? Watching like a salmon swim upstream or something, (laughs) you know. And, um, you know, we we did a lot of kind of like hemming and hawing over what would be a better environment for him. Right. Because a Montessori environment is kind of again, it's like self-led. It's it's less structured than, um, you know, a typical public school, traditional classroom. And so we made the decision, even though we love this community so much, we took a leap of faith and we put him in public school. And that has been the best decision for him. And so the more that I have shared that story and that speaking to different families in similar situations whose kids were in private school. um, The more people that I speak to, it's like a lot of people echo this, this concern, um, this, this problem that like a lot of the private schools cater towards like a very certain margin of kids, right? And it's like the neurotypical kids who don't really have learning disabilities, or if they do, they're kind of like very minor or mild, Um, But if you have anything else, like, majorly going on, maybe, like, severe ADHD or autism or um, maybe dyslexia, like, good luck. (laughs) Um, And I, again, like I said, I, I keep hearing these stories echoed over and over again, and... This kind of brings me to my next question, which is right? Like I'm here, obviously i'm 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 talking about things like private school versus public school, there are many listeners of the show whose kids are not in private school, who maybe you know can't afford private school and maybe feel like they can't afford someone like you. And this is also why I wanted to have you on today, because like what do those what do those families do, right? What are their options? if they need someone? like you, right? And they've tried doing all the things that you've recommended and starting with the pediatrician and going through the school, and and they're still not getting answers, and their child is clearly suffering in
1: school. What are their options? For parents, again, asking the questions. So many public schools have um, parent groups within the organization. Um, and so speaking to whether it's your classroom teacher, or the school principal, or even going to the district office and saying, is there a parent group? I think that my child might need some extra help to consult with other parents who have gone through that journey. That's helpful. In the state of Illinois, um, the entire state is broken into regions for what's called special ed cooperatives. And those are public entities that work to supplement the resources available at the public school level. So I worked in a public school that had two buildings, an elementary and a middle school. There was about a 1,000 kids in the whole district. So that's not very many children um, in terms of a public school system. So they didn't have resources necessarily for every type of child. So the in terms of resources, what can parents do if you're not getting an answer? And potentially, there are some school district administrators that, that they themselves don't know what to do. Yeah. So ask keep continuing to ask the questions until you find the someone yeah. who can give you an answer. But consulting with other parents and finding out what other parents have done and if those resources exist in your public school, that's another resource. There are private agencies that provide both advocacy and legal services, and they tend to do it on a sliding scale. And so if finances are an issue, that's another resource um, that could be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just told today that um, a hospital group provides some legal support for students who have an autism diagnosis. I've been doing Mm -hmm. this for several years. I never knew that that was the case. So, again, it's the asking of the question and continuing to ask the questions. Um, For me, myself, with Bridge Educational Advocacy, before I started my practice, um, I did research what is the average hourly rate. And I chose, and this is just my choice, um, to make my hourly rate uh, about 20% lower than what the average rate is. So there are people that charge even more, and that's not disparaging against them. Um, but I wanted it to be as accessible as I can be so there might be agencies that work on a sliding scale there might be agencies that can provide different levels of service mm-hmm. um, to so that it fits yeah. into yeah. you know what is reasonable and appropriate yeah yeah and I will say there is no
0: better feeling than when we are at an IEP meeting and we're all, kind of sharing those ideas, making sure that we're on the same page and it feels collaborative. And then when we actually see that translated into my son's academic and social emotional success, um, that is like, it's gold, it's gold. I, I, I It's like, it, it is, it's an emotional thing because we were so far on the other side of it. Okay, I wanna switch gears for a second. From a personal meaning standpoint, you shared in the beginning that you have a child who um, had several disabilities growing up. What does it mean to you personally, if you're okay to share, to do this work and the way that it fills you up?
1: So um, I wanted to be a special education teacher from the time I was in fifth grade when a very long time ago as an experiment um, that the school district brought in a classroom one classroom of students with physical disabilities and so we were in a typical elementary school and I was playing on the playground like other fifth graders would play and um, I saw these kids that were separate from us and I thought, well, why are they playing over there and we're playing over here? So I just walked over there and there was a little boy in a wheelchair um, and the teachers were scooping sand onto his wheelchair tray and putting little matchbox cars. And he was so happy. And I, my thought as a fifth grader at that time was, I would be mad that I couldn't get out of my chair and play in the sand. And he's happy to be near the playground and playing with sand on his wheelchair tray. And for me, that said, I have something to learn here um, as a kid. I, I was drawn to that group of kids because I felt like they could teach me something. Um, then fast forward to when I'm a mom and a teacher myself, and my youngest child had multiple disabilities. And I thought, as I mentioned earlier, what if I didn't know what I knew? And the humorous side, when my husband and I would go to meetings together, I would share with him what I thought we should do. And he would ask uh, our daughter's teacher, Peppy thinks it should be this or this. What do you think? And I thought, thanks a lot. (laughs) Um, But it's that reverence to teachers and school systems and wanting to be sure. Um, And when she was little, doctors told us she'll never dress herself. She'll never talk. She'll never sit up. Um, And she was able to do all those things. Um, So we listened. We made the best choices we knew how to make as parents. um, And she surpassed our expectations. So um, it's that tenacity of saying, I have a feeling. I know there's more there. Um, And trusting that. Trusting that as a parent. Trusting that as a teacher trusting that in terms of our own pursuit. And so when I go to meetings on behalf of other people's children, in the back of my head, uh, her name was Lana, Um, I say, well, what if this was Lana's meeting? What would I want as her mom um, to happen here? And so I bring that parental perspective along with uh, my other educational experiences to try to, to the best of my ability, make sure that we've had a conversation And we develop a plan that parents and teachers feel together is in the best interest. Not one side versus another, but together we're making a solid decision for kids.
0: What a beautiful soul you are. And yeah, it no wonder you have this relentless, I mean, you are epitome of workaholic, you never take your foot off the gas, and it feels your dedication is so apparent and it has meant so much to our family. I really, um, I tell you all the time, but I, I don't know where our son um, would be without you as a student. And even just from a, a, a social emotional perspective, which to me comes first, right? Like the academics are important, but that's secondary. If your kid is suffering because of the other stuff, that's I mean, that 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 needs to be addressed first and foremost. And you have been so instrumental in in his success. So I just I thank you so much. Um if people want to reach out to you or are interested in getting more information about possibly working with you,
1: where can they find you? So um, my practice is called Bridge Educational Advocacy. If you typed in Bridge Educational Advocacy, uh, I have a website with that same address, www.be as in bridge, in as in education, and then the word advocacy. So beadvocacy.com. Um, I try, uh, to the best of my ability, to respond to every inquiry, every phone call, every email, within the same 24-hour period that I receive it. Um, because I know if parents are reaching out, they're concerned. Yeah. And it, you know, none of our children came with uh, manuals. And so if my contribution to a family would be to answer a question, and it alleviates some stress for a family... Then um, that's what I want to try to do. Yeah. You're such a gem, Peppy. And we'll include
0: your website in the show notes so people have it there in writing to see too. Thank you so much for coming on today. You are a wealth of information and, um, and again, just such a gem of a person. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, we hope that this was helpful. And um, I certainly can endorse Petby wholeheartedly if you can't tell and until next time keep shining brightly bye-bye if you have enjoyed the show and want to learn more you can follow me at www.sheilluminated.com or email me with comments and show ideas at Jana at If you're interested in working with me as a coaching client, contact me at jana at JanaFuchscoaching.com. And if this episode meant something to you, please consider supporting the show by taking less than one minute to rate and review the show. It makes all the difference in the world to help spread the word, and it makes it accessible to wider audiences everywhere. You can also take a screenshot of it and share it with a friend or on your socials. Tag me, Jana Fuchs Coaching. And as always, may you walk through the rest of your day feeling just a bit more brightly illuminated. Until next time.